Hello and welcome to the IRF Research and Markets podcast, brought to you by the Independent Research Forum and me, former fund manager and strategist JP Smith. And today I'm going to talk about emerging markets with reference to some of the IRF's best-in-class research providers. First, a quick recap. Emerging market equities have now underperformed the S&P index in every single year since 2010. And I have to say, I did predict this as a sell-side strategist in December of 2010. Sorry, I just had to get that in. Emerging markets are now 36% below the February 2021 all-time high in terms of total returns. And in terms of price return, they're now below their 2008 peak as well. So it's been truly, truly dismal. And even this year, they're down 26.3% as of the 10th of October close, according to the MSCI EMF index, compared with the S&P's 23.3% decline. And again, if we think about the US really as the main driver of negative returns around the world, particularly Fed policy and the strong dollar, it's striking that even in this environment, emerging markets have continued to underperform. This year, though, the underperformance has been generated by markets which in the past have delivered more positive performance, particularly Korea and Taiwan, which are both down in dollar terms around 33-34% as of the close on the 10th of October, and also by China, which is down by a similar amount. These are really big index constituents. China is 31% of the MSCI index. And in contrast, three of the outperformers, Brazil, Indonesia, and almost unbelievably Turkey, constitute under 9% of the index in total. So you can see that they're really not sufficient to move the dial. You might be asking, why look at emerging markets at all? I must admit, I sometimes ask myself this question, as I'm not convinced that emerging markets are a coherent asset class. And actually, I've never been convinced of that. I think they're more of a marketing device for investment banks. And dare I say, at the risk of offending some of our clients, fund management firms, But there are three reasons why you can't afford to ignore this heterogeneous grouping. The first one, obviously, there's some very significant economists, most notably China and increasingly India, that are absolutely critical for global bond, equity and commodity markets. And of course, both China and India are important equity markets in their own right. Secondly, as we've seen to our cost this year, they're very obvious geopolitical significance particularly if we look at Russia, Ukraine, but also over the last five years at the deterioration in the relationship between China and the US, which is one of the main drivers of the underperformance of the North Asian markets over the course of this year. Finally, perhaps most significantly for a lot of you, not all emerging markets are correlated. In fact, very few of them. Then you can generate alpha usually, but not always by adopting contrarian strategies. So let's examine some of the live topics around emerging and frontier markets at the present time, which the IRF providers address. So first up, obviously, how vulnerable are these markets to the current carnage in the US, to the strong dollar, to the Fed tightening? And when might we start to see an alleviation of pressure from this source? And I'll address that with reference to a couple of providers in a minute. Secondly, if we look at the outperformers this year, we look at Brazil, which is the main outperformer, is this outperformance sustainable on both the currency and equity side? Is it cyclical or is it secular? 
and we'll address that in a forthcoming podcast. Can Turkey, which is the really surprise, in fact, astonishing outperformer, continue to defy what a lot of us would regard as objective analysis this year? And if we look at the underperformers, will Korea and Taiwan ever resume their multi-year outperformance or will they continue to be a drag on the index? And then on the outperformance side is the India trade, overcrowded, overvalued and overhyped by fund managers who have few other promising secular bull stories in emerging markets. And then finally, does the UK qualify as an emerging market? Actually, I'm only joking about that last one, sort of. And then, of course, the big issue out there is the outlook for the Chinese economy. The consensus now appears to be for a much slower rate of growth, even when the COVID restrictions are relaxed. But they're outliers on both sides of the argument. And I'll come on to that in a minute. So if we look at emerging market debt, emerging market debt has also been poor this year. The JP Morgan US dollar emerging market bond ETF is down almost 24%. However, it's different to the equity market to the extent that it's actually outperformed long duration treasuries. So the TLT ETF is down almost 31%. The debt universe in emerging markets is very different to the equity universe. It's much uh, lighter in terms of the North Asian exposure in particular. And we can see that the main driver for debt is definitely what's happening in the US. So now just to move on to a number of our providers. So first up, I want to address this question of North Asia, Korea and Taiwanese markets briefly. So as I've said, those markets are down in the mid 30% over the course of this year, having been really core overweights for a lot of fund managers over the past few years. And one of our very newest providers is Jonathan Anderson at Emerging Market Advisors. And he produces these fantastic daily notes. And in one of them recently, he pointed out that all of the cumulative outperformance from 2014 to 2021 in Korea was due to the tech sector and the subsequent swoon in the Korean market has also been entirely driven by technology. And the same is true of Taiwan. Now, there's some great charts in Jonathan's reports, as there are in all of his dailies. He also produces longer and more detailed thematic reports. In the last two weeks alone, clients will have received his China chart book, portfolio review with positions and views on EM debt and equity, as well as two installments of his now legendary how to think about emerging market context pieces. John has got a very impressive roster of clients already. I used to be one of them in my previous life as an EM equity fund manager. But if you're not familiar with his work, contact the IRF for a trial and or a call with John. Now, emerging markets in general and China in particular highlight one of the main reasons why you should subscribe to independent research. Because if we look at the Chinese authorities, they're famously sensitive to what the investment banks and indeed the news agencies and index providers say about them. Our providers are experienced global emerging market and China economists, strategists and analysts who live or die by their recommendations. And they're much more objective than the cheerleaders on Wall Street. And again, I have personal experience of this, which I probably shouldn't go into on a public podcast. We have providers who cover emerging markets as a whole through their asset allocation work. Both David Roche's team at Independent Strategy and Michael Howell at Cross Border Capital provide portfolio allocation advice in addition to their detailed analysis. 
Michael's scorecard on individual markets and, and focusing on emerging markets should be a level of risk control for every emerging market and global international equity investment manager. And both have been rightly bearish towards emerging markets, though Michael is now less pessimistic about the Chinese equity market. It's worth contacting Michael through the IRF to find out his rationale. Professor Neil Ferguson and his team at Greenmantle provide detailed and timely coverage of political and economic developments across emerging markets and developed economies, as well as providing more thematic research. And both David Roach and also Professor Ferguson have absolutely nailed developments in the Russia-Ukraine crisis consistently ahead of the curve and providing insights that you simply won't find elsewhere. Another provider very, very strong on EM, covers global economics as well, based in the US, is Phil Suttle at Suttle Economics, whose analysis and advice is particularly sought over by many of the world's leading hedge funds. And Phil provides very granular and timely coverage of all of the leading economies and some smaller ones. So he's also had extensive experience through the emerging markets, recently producing interesting notes on Argentina and on Turkey as well, which I would thoroughly recommend. And then Andrew Hunt at Andrew Hunt Economics, another experienced analyst who provides a global overview with more detailed trade recommendations. Now, Andrew is very pessimistic about the prospects for China, and that's a stance he and I will discuss in a forthcoming podcast. Then if we look at specific debt recommendations, two providers in particular, the IRF has Whitney Baker at Totem Macro, and manage Pradham at Talking Heads Macro. And then on top of that, we have some regional specialists I'll talk more about over the coming weeks in podcasts dedicated to specific markets. So just addressing this question of whether the Fed will break something in emerging markets, we have Whitney Baker at Totem Macro, and she is relatively sanguine about this. Whitney points out that the big liquid emerging markets are not short dollars. And she actually has an explanation for what is happening in Turkey at the moment and the rationality of the relatively strong performance of the Turkish currency and equity market. And again, I think you have to be in touch directly with Whitney to understand her arguments. She's got extensive experience and a strong track record in terms of her views. She also, as I think I commented in the last podcast, believes that at some point this dollar exceptionalism trade, as she calls it, will unwind. And when that happens, obviously, emerging markets, particularly on the debt side, should be set for a period of more positive performance. And then finally, she argues that it's really the distress we're seeing is really in frontier markets. Again, something I commented on last time, and she highlights Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Zambia. I'd also point to Nigeria, Bangladesh, and unfortunately, most recently, Egypt, as pressure imposed on those economies and indeed political systems by the strong dollar. And one recently that's come to grief is every equity manager's favourite frontier market, and one that has a place in many emerging market portfolios, namely Vietnam. So at the end of September, Vietnam was just under 31% of the MSCI Frontier Index and had recorded a total negative return of 25.5% over 2022. And that is going to hurt, unfortunately, quite a lot of people. And there's also some quite interesting and, and negative corporate governance developments happening in that market as well. 
Andrew Hunt also looks at the same issues as, as Whitney or some of the same issues in a recent piece. His conclusions about EM are not quite as sanguine, but that's partly because, in a way, he's focusing on a different part of the universe, particularly in terms of what's happening in China. And like me, he believes that the Chinese economy is in some serious trouble, which leads him to a somewhat contrarian, bearish conclusion when it comes to commodity pricing looking into 2023. And again, I'd encourage you to contact Andrew through the IRF. He has a very strong and real-time grasp of what's happening on a global level as well. So he can put things into context and give you a really strong analysis in views as to what might happen in terms of asset allocation going forward. I've already mentioned Jonathan Anderson, who covered China in detail for many years in his roles at the IMF, Goldman Sachs and UBS. And as I say, his China coverage is, is really, really excellent. On the ground, as it were, providers, Paul Hodges, or at least looking at it from the bottom up, his recent PH report monthly, he looks at global factors, but he's particularly strong at looking at the Chinese economy from the perspective of the chemical industry. And then, of course, one of the definitive reference points for not just for investors, but for central banks as well is the China Beige Book. About two dozen of the world's leading central banks subscribe to Leyland Miller's China Beige Book, extensive private data network in China, quarterly surveys, which, as I say, have become the definitive source for investors, surveying 4,000 executives across 34 industries. And he's been correctly cautious this year. They track growth, credit, labor market, inflation. Crucially, they split things up by industry and region. So it's a very three-dimensional product. And it's something which I think is indispensable for anybody who takes their analysis of China and the Chinese economy seriously. And industry-specific analysis is very important as the top-down levers in the Chinese economy don't seem to be working anymore and government policy is changing. I'd also highlight the work of William Hess and Song Gao at the PRC Macro. You can check out their recent call on the IRF website called Mind the Gap, Bridging China's Short-Term Growth Shocks and Long-Term Macro Strategy. They're especially strong on policy, laying out a roadmap for Xi Jinping's third term. And again, unlike the investment banks, they can afford to be critical. They look at national security, economics, decarbonisation, property, the dreaded COVID, supply-side policies, extent of the stimulus, common prosperity, policies towards the renminbi, and a recent report, Breaking the Links Between Power and Capital, highlights one of the major reasons why Chinese equity markets have performed so badly over the past three years, namely the government's assault on what is purported to be the private sector in China. So in a report in September, Neil Ferguson's Green Mantle covered the Chinese property sector, in detail, as you're all aware, I'm sure, China's real estate sector is in crisis and the risks there are clearly mounting. And the Green Mantle report goes through this in fairly forensic detail and reaches a conclusion which I think is quite important and quite fundamental, not just in terms of China, but in terms of what's likely to happen to the global economy and commodity markets over the medium and long term. Then again, if we look at things from an industry perspective, there's a very good report from Tenio recently on risks within the Chinese semiconductor sector and what the corruption probe within the semiconductor sector might mean for a shift in industrial 
policy. Again, it's this link between industry and policy that investors often miss. And it's not something which the big investment banks really talk about very much. But it's a very key lead indicator of perhaps greater policy developments that are likely to take place over the next few years. And obviously, what's happening in semiconductors, again, is absolutely fundamental to the relationship between the US and China going forward and has very negative implications, at least I think, for Chinese growth. So for my part, I've been a structural bear on China since about 2005, possibly leaning too much on my experiences in Russia. And I've always struggled with these governance aspects and the link between the state and even ostensibly privately controlled enterprises. But these are reservations, I believe, are now belatedly being played out and reflected in the secular underperformance of Chinese equities. I'm very excited that the IRF have just added J Capital onto their roster. And Stevenson Yang is one of the few China strategists who spent time literally and metaphorically kicking the tires of Chinese industrial enterprises. And I'm looking forward to exploring the links between Chinese industry and overcapacity, local government, property and the financial sector with Anne and her team over the coming weeks. That's all we've got time for on China at the moment. Just briefly on Russia, Ukraine, I can't possibly do this justice in a, in a couple of minutes, but there have been some important developments over the last couple of weeks or so. Now, many strategists and hedge fund managers who appear quite a lot on podcasts in particular have got the Russia-Ukraine conflict completely wrong, having believed that Putin, and again, sorry to use this phrase, but literally and metaphorically had the West over a barrel or rather over a pipeline. In other words, that the shortage of energy to Europe and the cutting off of energy supply to Europe as a result of the sanctions imposed on Russia would hurt the West rather more than Russia, and that this somehow made Putin very shrewd and, and forward-looking. However, all the indications is that the Russian leader is totally deluded and misinformed in terms of the ability of the Russian military to wage war against a much smaller but more determined adversary. So what's changed over the last few weeks? Firstly, there's clear evidence that internal opposition to Putin in the war is mounting. Unfortunately, this is from two sides, not just the opponents of his recent mobilisation, annexation and draft, but particularly from the extreme nationalists who are pushing him to adopt an even harder line. However, in practice, this is going to be very difficult to do. Secondly, Ukraine's battlefield successes and the growing perception that the Russian army is crumbling. And this perhaps is the surprise factor, not just for investors, but indeed for Russia watchers generally in terms of the government and services in the West. So thirdly and finally, Zelensky's determination to regain the Crimea. Now, I understand this in morality terms, both in terms of the fact that Russia unilaterally annexed the Ukraine in 2014 and also the terrible atrocities which it's clear Russian troops have been committing across the occupied areas of the Ukraine. However, this is utterly unacceptable to most Russians, even Russians who do not really support the most recent assault on Donetsk and Lugansk. So this may be difficult in terms of any potential negotiations, and it may, of course, end up prolonging the war and maybe even causing an intensification of it. So in terms of our providers, Wolfgang Munchau at Eurointelligence and his team, former FT columnist, his dailies are really great reading, really well written. And he states what a number of us have been thinking, namely that the likelihood of nuclear war rises in proportion to the likelihood of a Russian 
defeat. So that sort of escalation that I'm talking about with regard to the Crimea in particular. David Roach, who, as I said before, has called this correctly all the way along. And indeed, I did a podcast with him some weeks before the invasion in February when he stated against the consensus that Putin would definitely attack the Ukraine. He sees Putin as having escalated in his speech on the 30th of September. And there's a very good report he's written called Putin, the Rant and the Reason. And he believes the Allied goal now has to focus on regime change. And that has implications for European assets and the dollar. Again, you need to get in touch with David and his team through the IRF. And then finally, Neil Ferguson and Greenmantle also have a very strong take on this, very detailed reports, which again, I think you need to read to be aware of the debate. His take is not necessarily completely the same as David's, and it's a debate that institutional investors should be aware of. So that's all for this time. I'd like to leave you with an amusing or thought-provoking quote. It's difficult in view of what we've just been talking about to have one that's amusing. But given what's happening in the UK at the moment, I've got one from a recent daily from my old college friend, Phil Suttle at Suttle Economics. And Phil stated in a recent daily that I believe that economies work better when operated from the objective, objective in brackets, political centre. And I think that's a thought that most of us who've been operating out of the UK would endorse after the chaos that's been visited upon our financial markets over the past three weeks. So it's goodbye from me for the time being and look forward to the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.